Good evening and welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Coming up in today's broadcast of the Catholic View, we bring our feature as we focus on malnutrition and education. But for now, though, we bring you some of the stories that have made headlines in Africa and beyond with Mahadi Butelezi. Listen to Radio Veritas, 5.76 a.m. for a change. Bringing you your news headlines from Africa and beyond. Daily Mass with Pope Francis. African Economic Growth and World Humanitarian Summit 2016. A very good evening to you. During his homily at Mass at Santa Marta, Pope Francis said that one has to walk in the presence of God without reproach in order to journey towards holiness. During the homily at Mass at Santa Marta Tuesday, the Pope said that for this commitment to succeed, Christians must be able to hope with courage, open themselves up to discussion, and freely welcome God's grace. Holiness cannot be bought, neither can it be earned by human strength. The simple holiness of all Christians, the kind we are called to every day, says the Pope, can only be attained with the help of four essential elements, courage, hope, grace, and conversion. Taking the liturgical excerpt from the first letter of St. Peter, which he called a small treatise on holiness, Pope Francis said holiness means to walk in the presence of God without reproach. Holiness is a journey. It cannot be bought or sold, he said. It cannot be given away. Holiness is a journey to God's presence that only we as individuals can make, and we must walk in God's presence in an impeccable way. Everyday holiness, the Pope said, can be anonymous. And the first element needed to achieve it is courage. Jesus' kingdom of heaven, he said, is for those who have the courage to go forward, the kind of courage that hopes in an encounter with Jesus. We cannot achieve holiness on our own. It comes with grace. Being good, being saintly, going every day a little step forward in the Christian life is a grace of God, and we have to ask for it, said the Pope. But a fourth element is necessary for holiness, and that's conversion, a continuous effort towards cleansing the heart. La conversione tutti i giorni. Conversion every day, recalled Pope Francis, does not mean one must beat oneself as penance for committing a wrong. We are called instead to make small conversions, to not speak ill of another, like criticizing a neighbor or a workmate. Bite your tongue a bit, said the Pope. The tongue will swell some, but your spirit will be holier on this journey. I'm Tracy McClure. 
Bishop Joseph Anthony Ziwa, the ordinary of Kiyinda Mitiana Diocese and vice chair of the Uganda Episcopal Conference, has unveiled the theme for this year's Uganda Martyrs Day celebration. The theme is taken from the Gospel of John 8, verse 32. The truth will make you free. Martyrs Day in Uganda is a national public holiday observed annually on the 3rd of June. The Gospel of the Family, Joy for the World, is the theme for the ninth World Meeting of Families, which will take place in Dublin from August the 22nd to 26, 2018. The event was presented at a press conference in the Vatican on Tuesday by the Archbishop of Dublin, Dermot Martin, and the head of the Pontifical Council for the Family, Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia. Remember, Dublin begins today. Those words were spoken by Pope Francis to Archbishop Dermot Martin at the start of the 2015 Synod on the family shortly after the venue for the next world meeting of families had been announced in Philadelphia. This international gathering may still be more than two years away, yet as Archbishop Martin pointed out, it's not an isolated event. Rather, it's an extended process of discernment, encouragement, accompaniment and animation, as well as an important milestone in the application of the Synod's final document, Amoris Letizia. Speaking in Italian, Archbishop Martin noted that while the meeting will be an event for the Universal Church, it's also a significant experience for Irish families in particular. Ireland, he stressed, is a young country that maintains a strong family culture, though many people suffer the effects of a housing crisis and severe economic difficulties. The upcoming world meeting, he said, must be an occasion to encourage and sustain families in the many challenges they face. Responding to journalists' questions, both church leaders said it's too early to say whether Pope Francis will be attending the meeting, though they noted it's been nearly 40 years since the last papal visit of John Paul II in 1979. Due to the IRA murder of Lord Mountbatten in Ireland just a month before, the Polish Pope's planned trip to Northern Ireland was cancelled, so they said there was a desire for Pope Francis to meet with politicians and leaders of other churches there, as well as with the Catholic population in the north. Ecumenical and interfaith encounters, the Archbishop said, will be a vital part of the preparation process to highlight the importance of supporting families, especially in European countries where the number of births is often well below the replacement rate. They hope that the emphasis on joy at the heart of family life can help the church in Ireland and throughout the world rediscover the missionary vocation of families as the cornerstone of modern societies. I'm Philippa Hitchin. Senegalese President Macky Sall has marked May the 28th as the start of National Dialogue. President Sall intends to kick off National Dialogue by listening to representatives of the political class, civil society, private sector, trade unions, as well as religious and traditional leaders. The president reiterated his firm willingness to hold inclusive dialogue on issues of national interest. However, His Excellency Monsignor Benjamin Ndiaye, Archbishop of Dakar and President of the Episcopal Conference of Senegal, said if national dialogue focuses on the interest of the city, then it is worth it. But if it is an initiative to promote partisan and individual interests, it is not dialogue, it is fraud. The Archbishop of Dakar nevertheless welcomed the initiative of the head of the state and expressed the hope that this will serve to calm down the tensions.
Urbanization can help advance economic development in Africa through higher agricultural productivity, industrialization and an increase in services geared towards a growing middle class. That is one of the findings in the African Economic Outlook 2016, launched on Monday. Dian Pen reports. By 2050, two-thirds of Africans are expected to be living in cities. Unlocking the potential of cities will be critical to future growth and development, according to the report. It estimates that average growth on the continent will reach 3.7% this year, increasing to 4.5% in 2017, provided the world economy strengthens and commodity prices gradually recover. The African Economic Outlook is published annually by the African Development Bank, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development Development Center, and the UN Development Program, UNDP. Over 150 heads of state and government gathered for the first ever World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul, Turkey, from Monday the 23rd to the 24th of May. Amongst the key catchphrases at the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul is the need to rethink and reshape humanitarian assistance. In his message addressed to Secretary General Ban, Pope Francis noted some of the difficulties in finding solutions to humanitarian crises. In his message addressed to Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, Pope Francis said, I hope that your efforts may contribute in a real way to alleviating the sufferings of these millions of people who need protection, care and assistance and who seek a dignified future. He also noted some of the difficulties in finding solutions to humanitarian crises. For this reason, he said, what is needed today is a renewed commitment to protect each person in their daily life and to protect their dignity and human rights, their security and their comprehensive needs. At the same time, he continued, it is necessary to preserve freedom and the social and cultural identity of peoples. Aid for those in need must begin on a personal level, he said, but must also involve working together. Pope Francis also said he hoped the summit would be the occasion for recognising the important work of many who serve their neighbour and contribute to consoling those who suffer. He emphasised that love is not directed to ideas, but to persons. Finally, Pope Francis offered a challenge to those taking part in the summit. Let us hear the cry of the victims and those suffering. Let us allow them to teach us a lesson in humanity. Let us change our ways of life, politics, economic choices, behaviours and attitudes of cultural superiority. Learning from victims and those who suffer, we will be able to build a more humane world. Cardinal Louis Antonio Tegli of Manila is taking part in the World Humanitarian Summit as the president of aid agency Caritas Internationales. In an interview with Vatican Radio's Linda Bodoni, Cardinal Tegli identified three important ideas that can help to reshape or rethink humanitarian assistance. Since this is a humanitarian summit, let us consider human beings seriously. You cannot go more concrete than that. We are dealing with human beings. And it is sad if policymakers and the people in the academe and those with political power would address the humanitarian crisis only in terms of figures, statistics, and the juggling of some theories. While that might be necessary, I think the first concrete way is to go back to the human beings. 
hold the hand of a survivor of a calamity. Enter the shack of a refugee family. Listen to the stories. That's one. The second is, and this is one of the advocacies also of Caritas and I suppose of the Holy See, is Yes, humanitarian assistance is important. And in Caritas, we've learned that international donors and agencies must respect more and more the principle of subsidiarity because they come from the top. And sometimes, you know, they mean well, but the local communities know their cultures, their needs, their situations better. And so allowing or enabling the local communities to really get involved in their own rehabilitation or the rebuilding of their lives, I think is, is important. And thirdly, we have to address the uh, causes of the conflicts that drive people away from their homes. Or if it is a natural calamity, then we should address the uh, climactic uh, changes and the lifestyle though, that would help us cope with these changes, prevent disasters, etc. Now, I, I'm getting uh, this uneasy feeling where a successful humanitarian relief effort is hailed, is praised, but people should not stay for long in that humanitarian or refugee or a, a victim mode of existence. That should be dealt with swiftly for their good and for their dignity. A network to enhance future responses to food crises has been launched by two UN agencies together with the European Union, the Global Network for Food Insecurity, Risk Reduction and Food Crisis Response will produce regular joint reports in real time based on key analysis and timely response options. Dian Pen has more. The network will provide the best security data to guide governments, civil society partners and other stakeholders according to the World Food Programme, WFP, which is behind the initiative. The network is also expected to improve how lessons are learned from past crises. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, added that the network and its findings will be made publicly available to all. WFP, FAO and the European Union announced the network's launch at the first ever World Humanitarian Summit taking place in Istanbul, Turkey. Diane Pen in Turkey. And finally, tackling the challenges of transnational organized crime and terrorism is the goal of a new agreement between the UN Office on Drugs and Crime and the International Police Organization, Interpol. Diane Pen reports. The partners will share information and build on expertise to strengthen action to respond to these threats. The agreement also addresses emerging threats including the sale of trafficked cultural property to finance terrorism and the links between organized crime networks and terrorist groups. It was signed on Monday in Vienna on the margins of the 25th session of the Crime Commission, which is the UN's principal policy-making body in the field of crime prevention and criminal justice. And these have been your news from Africa and beyond. Have yourselves a very good evening. I am Mahadi Butelezi.
And that was Mahadi Botelezi bringing us up to date with some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond. You're still listening to The Catholic View and I'm Sheila Pirsch. We're coming to you on Radio Veritas, 576 AM, Rawaz on 870 DSTV, Coming up next, we take a look at education and malnutrition. Welcome back to our feature. We'll be looking at milk for change as well as greater allocation needed for education in humanitarian funding. Addressing government ministers at a high-level event on nutrition at the UN in Geneva, top chef Jamie Oliver said children's diets have never been so bad, but there is a way to change this for the better. I've never been more depressed about child health. It frightens the life out of me, whether it's hunger and malnutrition or obesity and malnutrition. The mechanisms behind big fooding are incredible. Yes, without doubt, in my opinion, they've caused the problem, but they can also solve the problem as well. In a call to governments to take action to protect children from the harmful effects of a poor diet and for people to hold politicians and the food industry to account, the British chef said that radical and unpopular ideas had proved their worth. These include the UK's so-called sugar tax, announced for 2018 and which will target soft drinks that are popular with children. His message echoed that of the health minister for Mexico, who said that a similar project had seen the consumption of sugary drinks fall 6% in the first year. Such action is urgently needed if governments are to prevent nutrition-related non-communicable diseases linked to being overweight, UN experts say. Daniel Johnson, Geneva. Now back home, Tetra Pak, in partnership with Feed SA, has initiated a campaign called Milk for Change to fight undernourishment among South Africa's larger communities, as well as to educate consumers about the nutritional benefits of long-life milk. Lisel Gruber is a marketing and portfolio manager at Tetra Pak South Africa. We know that for a fact in today's world, a lot of people are talking about change and most importantly, sustainable change. But we also know that not enough people are talking about milk. And this is very unfortunate because as you know, milk is an ideal source of both calcium and protein and contains essential vitamins and minerals. Having said this though, um, it's quite clear that the dairy intake of South Africans is well below the recommended daily intake of 500 moles of milk daily. And Essentially, we wanted to be able to link milk and change. Um, And how do we do that? Well, it's pretty simple. We know that without the right nutrition, children will not be able to focus properly while being educated. Uh, According to Stats SA, currently 2.5 million children go to school hungry every day. Um, And studies really have shown that if children eating a nutritious breakfast along with milk, they can definitely concentrate better and for longer, and this will help them develop to their full potential. So that's essentially how Milk for Change as a campaign was developed. We'd like to help children who currently go to school without breakfast in the mornings without milk um, to get that nutrition they need so that they can be educated and develop to their full potential. 
Milk for Change is a 360-degree campaign to provide families at the fringe of the economy with the nutritional benefits milk provides, and at the same time educate consumers about the benefits of long-life milk. The International Day for Protection of Children is observed in many countries as Children's Day on June 1st since 1950, and is also World Milk Day. The campaign really um, has. A few objectives. One of them being feeding communities in need. The other is about educating consumers around the overall nutritional value of milk, and then also creating awareness around long-life milk.、Um, it's based off of four very key steps. The one is digital media activities that make people aware of nutritional benefits of milk. As I've mentioned, one of the objectives. A microsite, which is www.milkforchange, that will complement our digital channels by provi- providing information around the technology of long-life milk. We also will be showcasing our hero video, which talks about how it really does take a small action to make a big difference.、Um, we also then have a digital call to action、uh, that will invite consumers between the dates of the 26th of May to the 1st of June to come into selected pick-and-pay stores and donate. A carton of milk.、Um, FedSA will then complete、um, the fourth step by collecting and delivering this milk to、um, those in need, and they will then report how many liters were collected to help people. We also will then use our website、uh, www.milkforchange.co.za to update around the progress of the actual campaign.、Um, So essentially, how many liters of milk we've actually collected?、Uh, we also will be using, and something I'm really excited about, a very interesting mechanism,、um, which will be that every single pack that is donated will have a sticker on it. The person donating the milk will then be able to write a message on the sticker, and when the person who the milk is being donated to receives it, they will then be able to SMS a thank you, a free SMS thank you. To the person who's donated the milk, and that will then be showcased on our website, and that really does sort of complete the circle. And people donating are able to get feedback from the people receiving the milk. And if I can finish off by encouraging consumers, schools、um, to get involved.、Um, You know, for this campaign, if it's taught us anything, is there's no better feeling than the feeling of doing good.、Um, if you visit the www.feedsa.co.za website as well,、um, we have partnered with FeedSA. Their mission、uh, is to feed the heart, minds, and tummies of 6,000 children daily, and we are confident that these. These donations will reach those communities in need, and as well as broader communities.、Um, and we really just want to encourage people to realise that it really does take a small action to make a big difference. So, if you visit our Tetra Pak South Africa Facebook page, or if you visit our www.milkforchange.co.za website, you can find out more about the campaign, as well as the selected pick and pay stores. That you can go into stores between the 26th of May and the 1st of June and actually donate your long-life milk. And that was Lisa, the marketing and portfolio manager at Tetra Pak South Africa. Education needs a greater allocation when it comes to humanitarian funding. 
That's the view of Sarah Brown, Executive Chair of the Global Business Coalition for Education, who is also attending the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. She's also president of the children's charity, Their World. On Monday, she joined her husband, the former British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, for the launch at the summit of the Education Cannot Wait Fund, which will aim to reach 30 million boys and girls around the world. Mrs. Brown spoke to Stephanie Kutricks. We're here in the Their World exhibition booth at the World Humanitarian Summit where there's a huge array of exhibitions to go and visit and the Their World booth is displaying illustrations from children who are themselves refugees where they've drawn for the charity what they think a safe school looks like. So where are these children based? In which regions? We've asked children from around the world, but children who are living you know, a vulnerable existence, who are uh, concerned about their chance to go to school, the quality of schooling they'll get, but also whether they have a safe journey to and from school or whether the prospects of not going to school make them vulnerable to child labour, child trafficking for young girls, early marriage. Um, so girls all, o- all over the world and, and boys all over the world, yeah. Did you get a chance to go to those locations and meet with them and talk to them directly? I visited a number of different places. We're talking to children in Kenya who live and go to school inside that giant rubbish tip that is the Kibera slum, where there is such a vitality and an energy and a determination to learn, but also an awareness of the danger of their circumstances and to make sure that girls going to and from their schools, you know, have a safe walkway and walk with each other and, you know, don't let themselves be out on their own. And also thinking of young uh, boys and girls that I met who are Syrian refugees and seeing them at the schools that they've been able to start at after a gap of some years uh, in Lebanon, in a new home in Lebanon, and attending a double shift school where they're able to uh, leave their home or their camp that they stay in, be able to get on a bus and travel to a school where there'll be either the morning shift or the afternoon shift and studying alongside local Lebanese children. So for them, their school is uh, sometimes uh, the simple frustration of sharing a coat peg with somebody else. Now only 2% of humanitarian aid reportedly goes to education. Are you here in order to try and get donors to provide more towards education? This first ever World Humanitarian Summit represents a very valuable opportunity for education in emergencies. Education has for too long been left out of the humanitarian response equation and out of the budgets. Um, one to two percent is is the amount that's often allocated for education but set against the need the very great need for food shelter water sanitation emergency health care so the, the call for education is one that's coming from those children themselves and their families and saying that their absolute priority for themselves when their lives are disrupted and in chaos and often in extreme danger due to war or due to a, a natural emergency disaster, they want to return to a normality of, that involves going to school is paramount. So this is an opportunity to say there needs to be a greater allocation in the humanitarian funding, not just the wider development piece, but the humanitarian funding for education, but not at the expense of all those other critical emergency services that are needed. Now, would you say that here at the World Humanitarian Summit, uh, the launch of this new fund is a first of its kind? 
The Education Cannot Wait Fund is being launched at the World Humanitarian Summit and has the opportunity to collect up funding from all kinds of different sources, it's not just governments putting money into this fund, that will allow the next emergency or crisis that emerges to have education right at the forefront of that humanitarian response. And this is a really important shift. And while it will start small, it's going to gather pace and grow very quickly, and it will do so for a number of reasons. One is there's a huge interest, there's a real buzz at this summit that education has finally found its moments in the emergency piece, and a huge amount of interest. There's an awful lot of partners, uh, governments, NGOs, other civil society organisations who are ready to help deliver that education no matter the precariousness of the, of the circumstances or how far children have had to travel to find a new temporary home um, and to be able to resume their schooling. So there's an energy for it. There's also a deep commitment to finding new funding for it. Now you work very closely with your husband Gordon Brown who we'll be speaking with tomorrow. Could you tell me why you make such a good team together? I think I make a good team with my husband Gordon because um, we're a good team you know, in our own personal lives and we both share many of the same passions. Certainly the work he does is very different to mine. He's a, uh, a politician, he works as an envoy for the uh, United Nations Secretary General and is very engaged with the big global pieces, with the financing piece and with how you engage in moving the political levers to make the big things happen. My role has been very much from the NGO side, working with charity, mobilising and uh, campaigns, working with youth voices is where I think we've found a lot of power through our charity side and also looking at delivering small programmes on the ground to see what works and what doesn't work. So while we work in very different fields I think that both Gordon and I share the same passions and certainly it's somewhere where you come together at a World Humanitarian Summit you can see that you're making, you're looking to make an impact for the same children. That brings me up to time. This has been your Tuesday's edition of the Catholic View. Remember, Catholic View is a program produced and presented by Sheila Birch for Radio Veritas. We'll be back again tomorrow at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Sheila Birch.